Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. This is our 100th episode, and in case you didn't know by now, my name is Sammy Hadjassad, and with me is fellow auto journalist Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to Ben, to all the people, Ben. Greetings, 100th episode listeners. Greetings to everyone. Yes, it's our 100th episode, although it is our 96th numbered episode. That's because we've had a couple of bonus episodes in between all 100 that we've provided. And this week, we're going to talk to you about some fun sports cars, um, some fun sports sedans, as well as some SUVs and uh, a fan favorite that's going away. But, so, but ben, I, I, I want to interrupt oh. Sammy to say that for everyone who's tuning out after the word SUVs, it's actually off-roading. So it's not the standard SUV talk. I know we had a very SUV-intensive episode last week, so that's not oh, going to yeah. happen this week. So don't don't despair if that's not your thing. That's right. Uh, don't leave immediately after hearing SUVs, as so many other people do. Um, okay, so I'm going to start us off because I was all the way in Bahrain, the kingdom of Bahrain, driving the brand new Porsche Panamera GTS. Now, the GTS is a model that fits right between the Panamera 4S and the Panamera Turbo. And it's $20,000 more expensive than the 4S and $20,000 cheaper than the Turbo. So it slots very neatly in the middle between those two cars. So, Sammy, would you say that this is a model that was designed by engineers or was designed by product planners to fill a niche? Like, what's your feeling on that vibe? I mean, my feeling is definitely the latter, but the point here is that... You know, the Porsche Panamera has a lot of um, pieces to pick and choose from to determine just how good this vehicle can can be. It's not what I'm trying to say is it's not a problem that it was it was pretty much put together by uh, product planners. I think that's not so much uh, a detriment as it is in other in other vehicles. The basis of this car is it an all wheel drive. Uh, vehicle. It's an all-wheel drive vehicle. It uses a 4-liter twin-turbo V8 that makes 453 horsepower and 457 pound-feet of torque. It does 0 to 60 in 3.9 seconds. It has a top speed of 181 kilometers. Uh, I mean, sorry, 181 miles per hour. And it is blazing fast. And just to test how good it is, we took it to the um, Bahrain International Circuit which is home of the F1 circuit out there. And we got to test it on a full F1 circuit. And that's the first time I've ever done that. Now, the, the, the circuit in Bahrain, is it brand new or close to being brand new? Yeah, it's very new. And it's designed by the same gentleman who's designing all the Formula One courses these days. Am I correct? I'm not sure. I don't I believe it's the same guy. Designers. Oh, well, I sorry. For a second, I assumed you were a professional. Uh, no, he's the guy who designed Coda and I believe the track in Singapore um, and the uh, Bilsterberg, which is amazing. Uh, one of my favorite tracks. What, what did So what was this track like? I mean, I, I know that a lot of the modern Formula One tracks can be described generously as homogenous. <laughs> so I'm assuming that it has a lot of runoff. Uh, a lot of high-speed corners and kind of just a very open feel to it. Is that is that accurate? Um, there were a few high-speed corners. There's also a few very tight, close ones. Uh, there wasn't so much elevation change. That's something that I wasn't expecting. I was, you know, usually really um, intense tr tracks have some elevation change to to accommodate, and this did not have. Uh, anything like that. Well, is Bahrain a country that, I mean, it's a, it's an no. island, right? <laughs> no, there's absolutely no elevation anywhere. Yeah, so it's, so it's hard. I mean, but if you think about it, I mean, what they did with Texas when they built the uh, Circuit of the Americas, that giant hill at the end of the front straightaway is entirely artificial. There's mm -hmm. no there's no actual elevation there either. They, they added it in. So I always thought that was interesting. 
Um, I was uh, I was impressed with the vehicle through this track because uh, some of the top speeds we were hitting on the straights were, were really generous. They're about 200 and maybe 20 kilometers an hour. What's that? In, is, what's that in miles? Uh, let me t- let me take a look real quick. I wrote this down somewhere. Um, Come on, man. It's 140. It's 140 miles an hour. 120 to 140. Yeah. Um, and I was pretty impressed with this Panamera for hitting those kinds of speeds, uh, especially considering that the F1 cars reach uh, 189 miles per hour in those in those same segments. But as soon as we hit the brakes, and thank God this thing has such intense brakes, um, we were at the same speeds as some of those F1 cars through the corners, which is pretty impressive for a thing that weighs 4,400 pounds. Like it's a very big vehicle, and, I, and this is a very important thing to talk about with the Panamera. This is a vehicle that is meant to to compete, I think, with things like the Mercedes-Benz E-Class, the BMW 5 Series, uh, the Audi A6, and it has to be better than some of the AMG versions of those cars, and I'm not 100% sure it is up to that level. Well, I um, mean, when you say it has to be better, there are so many different versions of the Panamera. I mean, you can't just say, That's right. are, are you saying that the GTS has to be better, or the Turbo has to be better, or where, where does it fall in the hierarchy for you? I, I mean, it's tough because... A turbo is is like, how do I say this? It's very expensive. It is unbelievably expensive. It's almost a hundred and I don't know fifty thousand um, dollars just to get started into turbo, and then you can get the turbo S uh, on top of that. So I would say that those things are even more expensive than some AMG versions of the E Class or the M versions of the BMW. Um, so I want this. I think that this GTS is supposed to be on par with what I would consider an, an E63 or a BMW M5. Okay. And luxury-wise, it's very much on par with those. And I think the track performance really is um, pretty good, actually. And what I'm what I'm concerned about is straight line speed. And I think that's a really weird thing to, to hone in on in this class of vehicles. But the M5 and the E63 are very, very, very fast cars in a straight line. If you want to escape an intersection, you can do that with... with no pause. It's it's instantaneous in those two cars, and I think that there is a little bit um, of a of a power discrepancy between the Panamera GTS and those full bore AMG models. Well, okay. So um, when you say it, it's not as quick in the straight line as as an E63 or an M5, mm-hmm. what I hear is those are the top versions of those cars. You can't That's get right. a better E class. You can't get a better M5, but you can get a better Panamera. And I know That's, you're saying the price is hugely different, but maybe Porsche is pre- presenting themselves, positioning the car as saying, look, if you want, you can blow everyone else away, but it's going to cost you. I mean, that's a pretty typical Porsche thing. It if is you look, an extremely typical Porsche Especially if you look at a car like the 911, which is, you know, trounced by cars that are less expensive than it. If, mm-hmm. if you were to get a, a Z06, you're going to wipe up. A, an, a Carrera S or a 4S or whatever that's similarly priced, but you mm-hmm. can still go up to the Turbo and, and the GT3 and, and what. There's, there, there's other levels to get to. They just, I guess what I'm saying is Porsche is not about price parity. <laughs> that's true. I mean, I think that's 100% true. I think their their buyers are looking for a very special experience. And I think the Panamera has most of that um, down pat. I, I, there's so many things that need to be commended in the Porsche Panamera. The transmission is the eight-speed uh, 
PDK. It's one of the best transmissions in the industry. It's always in the right gear. Uh, and it changes gear so quickly. I mean, have you you've used the PDK in the past, right? I think it's impossible to avoid the PDK if you're an auto, automotive journalist on the modern scene because it's it's just. I mean, Porsche has it in absolutely everything that they that they have these days. I mean, actually, that's not true. I think the PDK has been taken out of the Cayenne. Is that right? I think it has an eight-speed automatic. Yeah. Okay. So it's 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 in almost everything. So if you've driven a Porsche mm-hmm. and and the manual numbers are very low, it's a small percentage. So ch- chances are, if you've driven a Porsche in the last five years, you've driven a PDK. And uh, there's another element of the car. It has this uh, Sport Chrono package. It's standard equipment on the GTS, which is usually a an optional extra on the other version of the car. And part of the Sport Chrono package is there's a little switch on the on the steering wheel, and in the middle of it is a button. And you press this button, and um, everything gets like dialed into the maximum amount of performance that could possibly be like set up. So you get the the stiff suspension, you get extremely responsive steering, the gear drops into the lowest gear it can possibly go, um, and the car is is set up that way for just 20 seconds. They've kind of like... Wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Say that again, because I think I misheard you, but you said it's set up that way for only 20 seconds? Yeah, it's kind of like a, a, it's called the sport response button. Basically, it dials everything up to 11 for 20 seconds. It's like a, it's like a... A push-to-pass kind of feature. Yeah, I, I have so many questions. Okay, uh, at first when you were describing this feature, I was like, oh, that's really neat. It's, you know, we've been complaining about how cars like the M5, you need to know the Konami code to get to the funnest uh, drive mode, and it's <laughs> so complicated. And, oh, here comes Porsche, and they're like, hey, guess what? Just push this one button, and everything's awesome. And I'm like, oh, that's great. And then there's an ellipsis, and then like, but only for 20 seconds. <laughs> Can you just keep pushing the button over and over? I think there's a cooldown for for how many times you can press the button. Wait, it's like what? Diablo, it's like in Diablo when you have to, when you have a skill, you use a skill in in a video game, and you have I to think, wait for that I skill think, to recycle. I don't think anyone in our audience can relate to that. I also anecdote. don't think anyone in in Porsche knows what Diablo is. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, I, is the cooldown for the equipment, or is the cooldown for the driver who's presumably enters into a 20 second drive angry <laughs> Nicolas Cage style mood? Like this is yeah. The, I am not okay. I'm not cool with this feature. I think it's I think it's strange. I mean, what do you think of it? I mean, to me, if I was going to drive the car in its most aggressive setting, I'd put it in the Sport Plus, and I'd just put it in the manual mode, and I'd always have it in the lowest gear I can put it in. I don't, ra- I don't really know. Is this a road rage feature? Is this like, <laughs> yeah, that exactly. guy cut me off, so time for 20 seconds of payback? Like, it just, <laughs> it's, I don't see the the point of it in, in a racing situation. Oh, it's situation. a total gimmick. It's a total gimmick. In a racing situation, you do exactly what you just said. You'd already be in the most aggressive mode. So pushing mm-hmm. that button's not going to help you from a competitive standpoint. Not that there's a Panamera spec series. But <laughs> uh, moving even beyond that, 20 seconds just feels so limited. It, it, what if you hold the button down? What happens? Does it get really car- hot to force your thumb off of it? Like, yeah, the Porsche, the, it chimes in. It's like, please let go of the button, please. Oh man, uh, I, I, I am. This is this feat. They've completely lost me on this feature. Is this exclusive <laughs> to the Panamera? No, actually, a lot of cars have this, uh, the sport with the sport response button. I've seen it in a 911. Um, and I'm almost certain it's in the Boxster GTS that I drove a few months ago. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm flummoxed. I don't know what to say. What what what's what else does the Panamera have in store, Sammy, that, that might blow my mind? <laughs> There's standard adaptive air suspension, which was actually really useful because um in one of the one of the rare we got one of the rare sightings of rain in Bahrain. And um when it rains in Bahrain, there's not very much place for it to go very quickly and we got a little bit of uh, of flooding on the road 
Um, and the Earth's mentioned certainly helped with that, but we got you know rain up to about a third or maybe halfway up the wheel, which is pretty impressive. Did the that. air suspension help with that because it raised the height of the vehicle, or did it help with that because it made your vehicle more buoyant? <laughs> so uh, you could float to safety. So that we could float to safety, yeah. Um, there was also an interesting all-wheel drive system in this car, and I was trying to get a, a better understanding of it uh, from one of the engineers. Who if described... you push a button, does it go into all-wheel drive mode for 25 seconds? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, no. then back to rear-wheel drive? No, the what he had mentioned is in certain situations on the on the track, it can send up to 70% of the power to the front wheels to pull you out of a turn, which is really interesting. Wait, how, how, what was the percentage again? I think up to 70 Wow. Yeah, so it can practically, when I guess when torque steer is not an issue, um, it can just pull you through turns in a very um, very proactive, tyric murdering way, I guess. <laughs> I want I I I to go back to the... I, I, sorry, go on. Go ahead. I want to go back to this push-to-pass button oh, thing here we again. Go, yeah. So what if they put one on the passenger side so the passenger could give you 20 seconds of, I guess, road rage? And and it was, you know, they were allowed to do it once per ignition cycle. So it would be like the one once for every trip your passenger would put the car in crazy performance mode and you wouldn't necessarily know it was happening. Like, <laughs> yeah, I like is that. I like the is Porsche that a, Panamera game show edition. Yeah, that should be an option, The roulette, the roulette edition. Right. You just don't know. I mean, one moment, everything's cool. The next moment, Ghost Rider is sitting beside you, the flaming skull, and he's like, Pish, no! and you just blow yeah. by the person in front of you. You have no uh, control over it. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. That would be that would be pretty... I mean, the, the button's not too far. You can probably press it from a pass, as a passenger. Oh, dude, anyone who reaches for my steering wheel is, is taking a huge risk. I mean... Oh, that's not that... It's not that tough to do no it just it, i'm saying it just frightens me and i panic and i spin the car <laughs> you spin the car i hit i hit the, the the road rage button and everything goes crazy <laughs> i anticipate that that's why they're reaching um there's also some rear wheel steering on this car it's uh i believe it's uh it's available i think it's it might not be optional on this car I like uh, and rear wheel steering. some rear wheel steering like like there's more available elsewhere <laughs> Well, I mean, there is, uh, and, and rear wheel steering is so is getting so common today in some of these big sedans. It's a very interesting thing to to point out. Now, we used to have rear wheel steering back in the day in the '90s, and uh, it didn't really take off, and now it's coming back again with with a vengeance. Yeah, there's. Uh, I actually uh, was researching this just the other day, and there's over 23 cars on the market today. If you start looking at different versions of the same car um, that offer this feature. And this is this is like an uh, an active feature, not a passive feature. So that means that it changes the way the rear wheels will turn depending on um, how how fast you're going. So at low speeds, generally the rear wheels will will give you a slight bit of angle in the opposite direction of the front wheels. And at high speeds, it will go uh, in the same direction as the front wheels uh, to provide a little bit more um, stability. And this was really noticed on the track where there were some elements where it felt like the car could really steer from uh, the, the rear end uh, really nicely. It could really corner in a way that I was not expecting this ginormous. Four, can I, did I mention it's 4,400 pounds yet? It's 4,400. No, that's, like, that's like a Hellcat Charger. That's the same weight. It's big. And, you know, it, it, interesting uh, aside about four-wheel steering is it actually uh, – 
I don't know how to say this properly, but it, it expands and contracts the wheelbase, the yeah. theoretical wheelbase of the vehicle. So you get like three to five degrees. Mostly it's three degrees, but there's some cars that go as, as far as five. And when you can shrink the wheelbase at low speeds and extend the wheelbase at high speeds for the stability that Sammy was talking about. And it's really a fascinating way to do that. There used to be a lot of systems like that at the end of the 80s and the early 90s. And mm-hmm. Nissan had one, I believe, called Hikes. And they weren't done very well. They were more passive systems, whereas today everything is computer controlled and they have a much more a granular approach to how they can implement the, the steer assist. And I, I, we can't forget the uh, the king of four-wheel steering, of course, Sammy, which is GM's quadrasteer on their pickups. Right. Um, I want to get back to this, this Panamera real quickly. I want to actually finish up this, this conversation about it because we have a bunch of cars to talk about. Um, essentially in measured like performance in terms of like speed, I would say that the GTS doesn't seem like a huge step up over the 4S, but in terms of handling and, and sportiness and engagement, the, that's where the GTS badge really comes into play. I think that's where you really enjoy the, the added benefit of this, um, vehicle. It well, is available in two. It, sorry, it's available in two body styles. There's the normal Panamera GTS and it's also available as the Sport Turismo. There's like a wagon. Um, a lot of people are in love with this wagon, but if it was up to me, I would get the normal Panamera GTS because it has this really freaking cool three-piece spoiler that pops out of the uh, out of the the rear deck and like it open it it comes out of the 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 deck and then it expands sideways. It's pretty cool. Now, if there's snow and ice on top of it, does it do the same thing, or does I, it just burn out the motor and cost you sixty five hundred dollars? Uh, I'm sure for for twenty seconds it will. Attack. Oh man, twenty seconds of spoiler! Oh, does the button give you the spoiler too? It should. I'm not one hundred percent sure. I mean, why I would was, it not? <laughs> yes, that'd be sick. Does it also turn on the heated seats <laughs> just to like give you that much more uh, aggression? Yeah, and it and it changes it to Sirius XM like uh, like what's the one I'm looking for like lithium or something like that. <laughs> um, so, uh, Sammy, what's your final takeaway on the GTS? Is it something that you think makes sense if you're shopping a Panamera, or should you just skip up to the Turbo? Okay, it makes sense because the difference between a 4S and a Panamera Turbo is forty thousand dollars. It's a lot of money. So this is a really good blend in between those two cars because a turbo is 550 horsepower. It's extremely fast. It may not be that usable on the road every single day. Um, I think the GTS has just just the right amount of power, unless you're a power junkie, like I said before. If you want that that insane three-second zero-to-sixty time, then fine. The GTS just won't do it for you. But it has all of the handling characteristics of a fully loaded um, turbo just without that high-end um, motor, and I think that's a pretty decent um, bargain in the, in its sense in itself. Well, so the vehicle that I'm going to segue into now is also a pretty decent bargain, and I know that in the past I have we've talked about this vehicle a few times. You can never not talk about it because the answer is always Miata. But I spent uh, finally got a chance to spend a week with the 2019 model, and I know I was very bullish on the 2018, telling people, you know what, don't wait for the new one, buy this one because it's good. Well, I can tell you that the 2019 is even better. Uh, I am frankly shocked by how good the engine and the overall drivetrain is in the 2019 model. We're not going to dwell a lot on this, but um, the new model, we've talked about it in the past, it gets 181 horsepower and 151 pound-feet of torque, so that's a fairly decent bump on horsepower. It's close to 30 30 additional ponies, I think it's like 26, Mm -hmm. and a handful of extra torque. But what's the real story for me with this car was Sammy is just how much more playful and lively and fun it felt in the upper RPM range. They pushed the red line to, I think it's 7,500 RPM. Mm -hmm. And 
whereas the old car would pull to redline and it was fine, this new car just really makes you want to push it. And that's not something that I found was in the character of the the ND Generation 1 version of this car. The ND2, is it's almost like an entirely different animal. I mean, would, would you say that was what it was like for you when you were driving it, or am I the only one who feels this way? I, I wouldn't go ahead and call it a, an entirely different animal because um, I, I think the character is still very much the same. It's a playful car, but what I did like about it was that you could drive this car with that higher that higher RPM red um, higher red line without needing to change gears m- m- as many times, and that means you were playing at those higher red lines uh, more often, and that is that in itself is pretty fun. It just it just made me want to push the car. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the it, it, I think it, that's it, perfect. That's a great way to put it because of that higher red line and the way you're rewarded without having to slow down for second change gears um, like you would with the original the ND1, I guess um is is more playful right yeah it's it's uh, i'm amazed at how much improvement just this one simple thing has done and i'm wondering why they didn't do this from the start Uh, i think they could have avoided a lot of the recrimination that they received from the press about oh the car doesn't have the power it needs to be competitive oh it doesn't have the same character as the old miata I, i think that you know it they, they they used to say the 1.5 liter engine was the one to get because it was the one that revved high and was fun and free and all that stuff and only Europe got that engine and now we have the basically the two liter version of that 1.5 so we get we, we get to keep the torque but we add on this higher red line mm-hmm. and the power that actually lives up there I mean you know you can have a high red line but uh, some cars they just don't make power up high like my Datsun for example it's a, it's a fairly large straight six and it revs to about 6500 rpm but past 5000 rpm I'm not making any more power and what's fun about this Miata is you are making more power at those higher numbers and it's not just you know something you're doing because you can keep you can keep the engine spinning it you're keeping the engine spinning because you want that extra grunt i was back at the uh it was back in august i was on the launch of the nd2 and they explained why they gave this engine why this engine is here now basically when the nd1 came about they had to fit whatever the biggest engine they could for this um, North American market, and that's what they got, the 2-liter, and it just didn't, they didn't finish, they they figured it was good enough, and that's what they, they put in, and it, they didn't really finish what they wanted to do to it um, before it went on market. Now, when they've got the chance to revise the engine, um, and they've done a bunch of really important um, changes. They've given it a high-flow exhaust manifold. They've updated the intake ports. Um, all of the pistons are, le- are lighter than before. The connecting rods are lighter. Uh, there's a new final drive ratio. There's a new dual-mass flywheel. There's all sorts of new changes that they finally had the chance to... Basically, what I'm trying to say is the 1.5, it seemed, was the development, was like the right version of the car. That was the one they focused on when they made this whole new fourth generation MX-5. And now they have the chance to to focus on the on the two liter engine and uh, and perfect that. And I read that Dave Coleman, the one of the engineers in charge of the project, he said that when they were putting together the motor, they didn't really focus on a final power number. They were doing all the stuff that you just said to the engine because they wanted to. You have to have a lighter uh, lighter valve train and, and rotating mass inside the engine to get to those high revs and and have it be safe and you know be able to put a warranty on it. And then once they were done all that, they ended up with 181 horsepower, which is more than the uh, Mazda Speed Miata that we talked about a few months ago, which was previously the most powerful version of the car. Right. Um, what model MX-5 did you have? Uh, it wasn't a club. I can't remember exactly. It was a, several weeks ago. And it was but, a soft top or a... It hard... was a soft top. Yeah, okay. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of the hard top. Uh, right. The RF does nothing for me. 
Uh, it's 113 pounds more for nothing, really, <laughs> in my opinion. And in a lightweight car, I mean, every every nut and bolt counts, right? So, so in, I mean, when I drove the car, I only had the American pricing on the RF, the hardtop. How much is the how much is the soft top? Is it much more um, uh, accessible? In terms of pricing, let me take a look because I'm on the Mazda page right now. But that, the, the, that was the one base of our biggest complaints about the RF was that, especially when you get those sport those sport models or the the Recaro sport models, you end up spending a lot of money for this car. Well, the base Miata is still twenty five thousand dollars. That's perfect. Uh, if in, in with a with a manual transmission, and if you want to step up to the RF, uh, let me take a little look. Oh, it's that's fun. Miata, <laughs> so Mazda lists the RF as a completely different car, mm-hmm. and it starts at a whopping thirty two thousand dollars. Right. That is twelve grand. No, sorry, I'm I I can't do math. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is seven grand more. <laughs> right. Seven grand more for the hardtop, and it's because you jump you jump right into that club model, which you don't have to do with. You can still get a base soft top, right? So that's that's a big. What is a soft top um, club? A soft top club is two thousand dollars cheaper than a than an RF club. So it's still it's just around thirty grand. Yeah. So if you if if if, sorry. Sorry, it's actually a little cheaper. It's twenty nine five. So uh, I was looking at the automatic price. So still though, I mean seven thousand dollars to to get to the club. If you really want the club, stick with the soft top. Spend another three and a half thousand, and you'll you'll get all of those features. Uh, the Grand Touring is actually it's a little weird because the, the the spread between the club and the Grand Touring is only like eight hundred bucks. So I don't understand that exactly, but uh, <laughs> I guess some people they just want the comfort stuff and they're not going to yeah. go to the track and it it doesn't really matter to them and that's why the automatic transmission is still available. How but much, anyway, sorry, sorry, go on. How much time did you spend with the, with the roof up and or the roof down with the when you drove this MX-5? Are you one of those people that when you're driving the MX-5 it has to be roof down no matter? Yeah, what? the the top was down the entire time, even when it was raining, even when it was really cold up here in Montreal. It was just down, 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 down. I had the heater on. I had you know mittens. I had a hat. I had a scarf. I had a vest. I had a parka. I had a like a sheepskin that I like put over my body, and then I punched holes for the sheepskin so I could hold the steering wheel. And then mm. I had sheepskin gloves. It was just, I mean, everything I could do just to keep that top down. Um, I got some some love from uh, people on the sidewalk. I got some looks like, you're an idiot. What are you doing? Uh, basically, everyday life for me is similar to that. So the Miata just enhanced it. Okay. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start talking about whatever car I had le- uh, next because uh, I don't want to think about you and your sheepskin get up driving around town. I've already sent you several photos <laughs> yeah, by email. I, I, I uploaded them to Montreal, the Montreal subreddit and people are like, I've seen this asshole driving around. Um, that, that filter that you have on your email, I figured out how to get around it. The sheepskin filter is a fail. You're going to have to try again. <laughs> um, the other two vehicles I drove, yes, they're SUVs, but I'm going to talk about not pretty much. I, I mean, I haven't done too much research on them, so that's me being a hashtag Sammy Hajisad. <laughs> but I had just come back from Las Vegas following the 2018 SEMA Auto Show, and I went there as a guest of Mopar. And one of the things that we got to do, we got to go to a place called the Valley of Fire, and we got to drive the 2019 Jeep Grand Cherokee and uh, Jeep Grand Cherokee. Trailhawk and the Jeep Wrangler Rubicon. Okay, so, okay, wait, wait, wait a minute. When you say Valley of Fire, I'm picturing like, mm-hmm. I'm picturing. Yeah, you're thinking of like Mad, Mad Max, Max, Fury yeah. Road. Mm-hmm. There's like a crazy guy playing guitar on the hood of a of an 18 wheeler chasing you through a desert. Is that accurate? 
Uh, it's not far off. It There is no fire. That's unfortunate. But it is extremely sandy and very rocky. There's two very distinctly different um, terrain types here. Um, and so the first thing we did is we took these Grand Cherokees. We, we, they have like this terrain response mode where it's like a dial in the middle of the uh, of the, <laughs> the center console. And why we immediately... Why, why did that crack you up? It just makes me laugh because there's this thing that says snow, sand, auto... Mud and rocks, and I was just like, "Yeah, let's just put this into sand, and that should be all we need to do." And that's what we did. Um, Hilarious! You're right. I'm, 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 I'm laughing right there with you. <laughs> I mean, I just think it's funny. There's, uh, there's this one little button that does all these different uh, changes. Wait, is there a button in, and for, you push it, and for 20, <laughs> for 20 seconds, seconds yeah. you get snow mode or something? Yeah. <laughs> just for that, uh, for that downpour, that one. It, 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 it makes you know, going back to the Panamera button. <laughs> It makes me think of when you would play Outrun and you would get yeah. to like you would get to the the timing gate and it would give you like 20 seconds more driving in the arcade on your yeah, quarter. Yeah. That's what it's like. It's like Panamera's like, all right, 20 more seconds of fun. You paid 150 thousand or whatever for this car, but 20 <laughs> seconds is all you're getting. Um, okay, so let me get back to this, this Grand Cherokee. First of all, driving in the sand, and, I, and I've been in sand, but never as soft and as much sand as I had here. And the best way to describe sand is it's like very, 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 really, really, very weird snow. Yeah, if anyone in our <laughs> audience has never seen, touched, or experienced any form of sand before, Sammy's going to tell you what sand is. Keep going, it's, uh, it's like It's like snow. <laughs> It's it's like snow in the desert. Is that yeah. what you would? Yeah, it's like okay. A different temperature. Of Wait, snow. if I'm on the beach. Yeah. And there's snow. Yeah. And sand. Mm-hmm. I I forget my point. Conti- continue. <laughs> yeah, continue. yeah. It's a, it, that's a weird thing. Um, driving in the sand is is actually a lot of fun. Uh, when you're in a vehicle that's really well equipped for it. Um, the Grand Cherokee Trailhawk that we had. When you put it in that sand mode, and we also raised the air suspension a little bit, and that helped uh, as well for some of the higher sand dunes that we had to drive through. Um, what one of the more important things that it was supposed to do was dial back some of the traction control because you need a little bit of spin, just like being in the snow. You need a little bit of spin to get going in some situations. Did you air down the tires as well? They were aired down a little bit. I think they were down to maybe 20 psi or less. I'm not why sure. Would you, why would you want to do that on sand? I believe you need the additional sur- tire surface area. Um, granted from when you, that is given to you when you air down the tires. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Perfect. No, no further questions. No further questions. The witness may continue. Okay. Um, but however, one of the things that bugged me about the Grand Cherokee, we had to go through some, some like, they're kind of like womps. I don't know how the best way to describe them. They're kind of like womps. Um, what's a womp? I've never heard that before. They're, um, uh, it's like a, like a, Oh man, I'm 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 losing it. They're like little bumps. They're like little uh, like little dips and valleys in the sand. Um, ele- in terms of elevation, they would go up and down. Okay. Okay. And I was expecting that the the Grand Cherokee with its air suspension would be able to handle this pretty easily. However, in some of these situations, going up or down them would would generate the largest, lo- loudest thump from the rear end, and it was really disorient like not disorienting. It was concerning. Uh, that we were like, maybe we should slow down and, and take it easy on these poor things. Um, Do you think maybe the, the differential was hitting, or did you figure out what it was doing? I'm not sure, because um, we, were in a, we were in a bit of a, a lineup, so there were a bunch of other guys up ahead of us, and they took off on these, like, on, on the sand course. And I'm seeing them, they're going, they're taking off, but as soon as I made it through one or two of these sort of, like, hills, and I heard this noise hitting, I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ease, ease back. This is, 
This seems a little uh, abusive to these cars. Yeah, you hear that, FCA? Sammy really cares about the... He has a mechanical sympathy that some of his colleagues just don't seem to embody. So <laughs> I think that's something that everyone should appreciate. Uh, in addition, we also saw a lot of other journalists, you know, dropping trim pieces up on the on the trail. That was a bit of a concern, too. So, I mean, as much as you would put your car in the sand mode, it doesn't turn the car, the, the vehicle into a into an, an all-terrain vehicle. It, you really need... You're, you still need to drive it appropriately um, and, and to manage the best of uh, of the truck there. Yeah, you're no Tuscan Sand Raider out there. I mean, come on, let's be realistic. I, I tried, though. I'd like to be one day. Um, I loved it. The best part about this vehicle is that it had the 5.7 liter uh, Hemi. I think the Hemi engine is, is notorious now. It's really well known. People, people know it. And I really find that having that much extra power, uh, especially in sand, is a huge help. It's unbelievable because sand, unlike snow, sand can really bog your tires down. It can really like, it, it is a bizarre way to say it, but it can almost suck your, your car into this, this terrible pit of more sand. Like if you don't have enough power to push yourself out of it, you can get really, really stuck. And uh, when you have a, that 5.7 liter Hemi V8 to push you out, I thought that was um, pretty, pretty advantageous. That's interesting because I would have thought that it would have the other effect, like, you know, when you're in snow and you have too much power and you just spin and you can bury yourself in the snow. Like, I would have thought that maybe in sand, if you have too much power, you just, you can't get the traction you need to move forward. Is is it like a balancing act or do you just hammer down and you're out of it or how did, how did it work? So I think, I'm trying to think of when you have too much power in snow. What usually happens is, uh, first of all, if you have too much power in the snow, you you might have more difficulty controlling controlling it, I think. Um, and I think straight line, straight line control is, is hindered quite a bit. Um, the problem with too much in the sand is when you're at a stop and you and you and you smash the throttle, it can dig in a little bit too much. And if you dig in too much, then you just get you get up to your axles in in sand, and that means yeah. you're not going anywhere. Um, the other car I drove though was far more interesting, and, and and I got to do something I've never done before. I drove the uh, Wrangler Rubicon. And we also got to remove all the doors um, off these things, which was somewhat helpful for the task at hand, which was rock crawling. I've never really rock crawled before, and I think you have before, right, Ben? Yeah, a few times. So we we did it in, in automatic equipped Wranglers, and let me tell you, they had these um, these BF Goodrich KM2 tires, I believe, which were, man, I've never seen anything like this. We're taking grade like 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 rock face. Rock faces at, like, they've got to be, like, 40-degree, like, angles. It was insane. I've never Im imagined a car can just be, like, put its best Spider-Man impression and go up this thing without any issues. It was so impressive. And the wheel articulation, the, again, we have electronic disconnect, uh, disconnecting sway bars, and and we have electronic disconnecting sway bars, and we have the, the front and rear diff locks which really helped in, in the uphill sections of, of the rock crawling bit. I was impressed. I've never done this before. And I have to say one of the things I really appreciated was how slow and measured rock crawling is. Um, unlike being on the track or, or something like that, when you're, when you're testing a car out for the first time and they just say, okay, that's the track, go and hit it. Um, rock crawling really requires you to, to pay attention, to go as slowly as you can, and to make really, really small incremental changes to the steering and throttle as needed. And I think that's a really accessible way of, of I, I guess, specialized driving. 
I think is the best way to say it. So you had people helping you out like the whole way, right? There are people yeah. standing here because you can't always see what's going on directly in front of your vehicle when you're at an unusual angle, especially if it's like a really high vertical. It, it can be a little um, alarming to <laughs> to just mm-hmm. keep have your faith that you can keep moving forward and there's not a giant rock directly in front of you or a crevice or something. I mean, it really helps to have people who are on either side of the vehicle helping you advance through that trail. Um, and another element of the car that you need to get you need to get used to is when those diff locks are enabled, the rear and the and the front diff diff locks. The turning radius of the car is really it really is affected by this, and the car cannot the the Wrangler cannot turn nearly as tightly as it could um, with those elements um, not locked. Uh, and it was something that I was witnessing with some of the drivers in front of me who were clearly not taking any 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 attention for the, the the vehicle and the the way that it was supposed to be driven and started turning into things a little too wide and they're scraping and bumping things and i i mean me i was cringing but i guess uh the the wrangler has all of these like really heavily armored components in the vehicle it has like these big thick skid plates and the car still looked as good as new after after all of this uh tumbling ar- around well, uh, if you were going to go off-road, I mean, which of those activities would you pick? Did you have more fun in the sand, and did you have more fun in, in the rocks? And follow-up question, which of the two vehicles you drove would you recommend someone take as their off-road choice? Let's oh, say man, let's say they tough. let's say they had to daily it. They also had to daily it. It's so hard. Okay, I really enjoyed the sand, the sand, uh, the sand storming, or the, what do you mean, the dune bashing. That was a lot of fun because it's it's faster. It's you get a little bit more. Um, you get a little bit more like sliding action with the with the sand. It's it's fun, and you also do feel like you're you're. It's not just, I don't know. There's like this unpredictable element that's really fun to to enjoy in in dune bashing. However, when you when you talk about the Wrangler, the Wrang the new Wrangler is extremely livable now. It's really well done, and kudos to to SCA for somehow managing this balancing act between a very like non-compromised off-road vehicle that is still like a modern car in in so many um in so many key factors it's comfortable it's quiet it's um it's it doesn't feel unwieldy on like the highway and stuff I also want to say that, you know, rock climbing, rock crawling, sorry, you're going to have to bring some friends with you. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you don't have any friends, then the dune stuff is just, you know, it's totally like the Batman style. I'm a loner. I'm going to go do this. Uh, so if that's if that's a consideration for you, then, uh, then I mean, Bruce Wayne, if you're listening, you want to be a dune basher. Uh, well, I mean, actually, it's it's interesting because the cool thing about dune bashing is that each day the trail changes based on the wind, essentially. And one day the trail can look like one thing, and the next day it can be completely different. And you have to accommodate for that, and you have to do a little bit of scouting before you hit the sand dunes. It's sort of like our friendship. Like, I, I never know which version of emotional Sammy I'm, I'm going to be talking to, whether it's going to be the one who showers me with attention and praise or mm-hmm. the one who coldly turns his back and doesn't respond to my repeated texts at 2 in the morning. Yeah, I mean, that always depends on, on the winds, too. Let's be honest. The winds of change. The winds of change. And actually, quite a lot has changed over our 100 episodes of the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. But the things that haven't changed are the ways you can get in touch with us and where you can find all of our episodes of the podcast. Ben, you want to go through some of those uh, those things right there? 
Sure, uh, you can. <laughs> Those things right there, eh? Yeah. Let's let's make this the most Canadian sign-off possible. <laughs> so there's there's uh, of course social media. Sammy is a fan of the cesspool that is Twitter, and you can reach him at Sammy underscore Ha, like you're laughing. Mm-hmm. Or you can find me on Instagram at Hunting Benjamin, or you can email me the old-fashioned way, Benjamin at Benjamin. Is email really that old-fashioned? Well, I don't, it feels old-fashioned these days, but we got some great feedback from email this week from some longtime listeners, and we're going to be addressing some questions that they had in upcoming episodes. So thank you very much for sending that in. You folks know who you are, and we appreciate it. If you don't want to use email, but you still want to get a hold of us, there is a contact form at unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, and that will send us a message directly. And you can also find us on Facebook, Unnamed Automotive Podcast. Just search that in your Facebook, and you will discover um, our page, which we update with photos and links to recent episodes. Sammy, uh, if they want to listen to the podcast, maybe they want to hear all 100 episodes over the course of a single weekend. I don't know if that's possible, but if they wanted to, how would they do that? Well, I mean, when you go to Unnamed Automotive Podcast uh, to send one of your 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 feedback notes, your, your, your notes of feedback to us, you can also subscribe to us there. You can subscribe using the buttons on our page that will send you to iTunes or Google Play Music or Google Podcasts or Spotify or uh, CastBox or, oh, I got another one. I'm sure I got po- uh, oh, podcast. Uh, I don't know. What, I don't He's know. Just what saying, you're is. just combining <laughs> podcast and random words. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, or if you don't want to go to the website, you can probably search for us on those um, on those podcast clients and we will definitely be there waiting for you to click subscribe and uh, to download to your to your device and you can listen to us whenever you're commuting or traveling or whatever it is that you do when you listen to our podcast now before we get to what we're going to be talking about next week there's one thing one more thing that i wanted to bring up and that is sema happened last week and Mm -hmm. for those of you who aren't familiar sema is a giant aftermarket show that happens in vegas every year it is enormous it is ridiculously huge and a lot of weird stuff happens there and to me the weirdest thing that happened there this year was a company called uh forgiato and a forgiato is a wheel company and what they did was they bought a maybach that had been involved in a fire like it it had been yeah it had been totaled in a fire and i mean it has no doors or roof and it's it looks pretty rough and they put a set of like fifteen thousand dollar rims on the car and that was their entire show. That was they were like, "Yep, we're done," and they walked away and they just parked it there. So it's like the most zero effort SEMA program you could possibly imagine. But they got a ton of attention for it. They were 22 inch Orologio rims. So, um, Sammy, how do you feel about this? Would you would do you think this is a great way to promote your company, or does this kind of turn your company into a punchline? I mean, I thought that this. Am I mistaken? I remember this, uh, like a Maybach or a heavily damaged Maybach was featured in a in a music video or something like that. And I thought this was maybe that that vehicle when I saw it at SEMA. And uh, if that's the case, I thought that was pretty cool. But uh, if it's not, if it's just a fire damaged car with wheels on it, then I don't understand why you couldn't just put anything. You can just bring anything you want and put wheels on it. <laughs> New, oh yeah, newsflash to everyone. Sammy was also at SEMA this, this past week when he was doing his cheap drive, but he didn't mention that, did he? I did. I mentioned it. I, I mentioned we were there, and um, we got to see this new um, Dodge Crate engine called the Elephant, which is a uh, which is a big-ass engine that makes 1,000 horsepower and 950 pound-feet of torque. And um, I don't know if this happened. I don't know if this happens regularly with any announcements of crate engines, but they also fired it up and revved it 
um, on stage, which in, which got everyone really drunk on fumes, which was great. Was it in a vehicle or was it on a, a, a drivetrain, like an engine stand? So the one that they revved up was not in a vehicle, it was in a, in a little stand. But it okay. was, they also provided this really cool concept vehicle, a Dodge, a 1968 Dodge Charger that had some modifications from um, the Hellcat, the Demon, and even a Viper in it. And uh, it was a really attractive looking concept. And I really suggest that you you maybe head over to autoguide.com to take a look at that story um, and, and get some close look photos of it. Now, uh, Sammy, what are you going to be talking about next week? What do we have lined up on deck? Um, next week, I have a crossover comparison. So I'm sorry to, to mention that to the people who are not in, into that. But I do have uh, three of the most um, competitive vehicles in this segment: the, C- the Mazda CX-5, the Honda CRV, and the new Subaru Forester. I'm going to be comparing See how, ex- how excited Sammy gets. He's going to get to talk about that that um, police state camera system inside the Forester again, and he's already can't wait to I'm talk so, about. I'm so excited. I'm going to be looking gonna, off the road all the time to see if it stops me. Just to make some kind of connection with Big Brother. Um, next, So next week, I'm going to be talking about my visit to Mexico. I went to Puebla City, where a Volkswagen has an assembly plant that's been building the Volkswagen Beetle since 1955. And this is the final year for the Beetle. I had the chance to drive the final edition of that car and also tour the plant and check that out. And uh, let me just tell you, driving in a major Mexican city of 3 million people is quite an adventure. <laughs> and uh, I also will be talking about the uh, an SUV, but it's a little bit different than what Sammy has in store for you. I will be talking about the, the Grand Cherokee Trackhawk, the 707 horsepower supercharged version of the Grand Cherokee that has been living at my house for the last seven days. Very cool. I can't wait to hear more about that. I've got one book later on this year, and I can't wait to drive it too. So, All right, so thank you. Oh, that was awkward. Uh Uh-oh, we're still doing it. (laughs) 100 episodes later, and we still can't sign off without feeling weird. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we really appreciate your support. It's been about two years straight now. We've been hammering these out each and every week, and uh, we do it because we love it, and we're happy that you guys are here with us for the journey. Yeah, thanks for listening, and on to another 100 episodes. Isn't that right, Ben? That's right. Bye, everybody. Bye.